Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. Now, that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It's open to all children, which, of course, private schools are not. It should be public in ownership and control, which is becoming less so with private-public partnerships, which put our citizen taxpayers in hock for anything up to 20 years if they want a new school. And uh, as well as that, our public schools should be the only ones that are public in funding because for the very simple reason they are the only ones that are publicly accountable. And our governments should be making sure that every child in this country has access to a first-rate public education. Now, we know this isn't the case, and we know that it's very difficult to make sure it's the case because the government in power at the moment uh, says that they have private schools in their DNA, and the, the Labor Party are very weak on the issue and very, very compromised, particularly with their current uh, shadow minister, Plibersek. But um, in the last week, something very interesting happened. All of the Ministers for Education met on the 7th of April, Friday the 7th of April, down in Hobart. And they were supposed to nut out just what was going to be the funding arrangements for public and private schools with Commonwealth Government funding for next year. And the talks collapsed. Nothing was decided about the funding and everybody disagreed with Mr Birmingham. There was not one state minister that came behind him, even though some of the ministers, in fact, are members of the same party. Very interesting situation. The, uh, you'll find all of the details about this in our press release 701, which will go up on our website at www.adogs.info. You can also find out more about it if you go to the doorstop interview done in Hobart by Mr Birmingham himself, as well as to the press release that the Australian Education Union got out immediately after the funding failure. And you'll find out that the Turnbull government's attempt to scrap the Gonski funding was completely rejected at the Farcical Education Council meeting in Hobart on Friday the 7th of April. 
Now, what's very interesting is that the AU thought that it was a farcical meeting and it's certainly been put off for uh, further discussions on funding until, uh, when is it, uh, June, well into June. But um, it's uh, an education minister's meeting just a few weeks before the COAG meeting where Malcolm Turnbull has said that he wants a funding agreement to be finalised. Well, good luck, Mr Turnbull and Mr Birmingham. But the actual interview I found with Mr Birmingham was very interesting. Over the last uh, few weeks, indeed months, uh, Robert and I have been telling you about the research done by the Save Our Schools people and the Australian Education Union and other state school lobby groups. And these state school lobby groups have been really very, very persistent. And if you look at the uh, transcript of the doorstop interview in Hobart on the 7th of the 4th, 2017 at 1.15 p.m., which was done after the talks had broken down, you can see exactly what Mr Birmingham is talking about. They may not produce the money, but one is always interested in which side of the lobby groups the ministers or the politicians, which rhetoric they're using. And the interesting thing is that the rhetoric of the Gonski people and the rhetoric of the Save Our Schools people who are pushing forward the needs policy, a proper needs policy, is in fact what Simon Birmingham is accepting. And listen to this. I'll, I'll read out what he said in the interview. The journalist said to him, as you said, that COAG meeting's in June. Do you feel like this meeting here has brought you a step closer to finalising a funding deal? Now, Simon Birmingham didn't answer yes or no to that. He changed the, changed the uh, question, of course. He said that the Turnbull government's been working very hard in terms of the reforms that we think are necessary to lift school improvement and achievement and in terms of how it is that we transition away from a hodgepodge of different funding deals towards a more consistent, towards a more consistent approach in the future. And each day we get a step closer to that. And today's another day, another day, another step closer. Journalist, what do you mean by a more consistent approach? Simon Birmingham said in response, Right now, schools of identical need, of identical socio-demographic circumstances, can have a very different levels of Commonwealth funding across the country. Thousands of dollars more going to a school that, in terms of their composition and mix of their students and those student backgrounds, is identical to one in another state or territory and receives significant different Commonwealth funding because of different deals that were done at the time. Commonwealth governments should absolutely treat states and territories in a fair and consistent manner. 
Now, please note that by consistent, he means that it should be consistent between states. But uh, he's assuming that uh, within states, uh, there is consistency on his needs policy, but we all know that that's not the case. But at least he's concerned that there is some sort of consistency based upon identical socio-demographic circumstances of the children. And then he goes on to say, now, it should reflect need, and need means ensuring that a state or territory like Tasmania, he's down in Tasmania, remember, when he says this, with some additional particular issues in lower socioeconomic circumstances and challenges, should receive additional funding because of that. But schools that have exactly the same challenges, whether they're in Tasmania or Queensland or Western Australia, should be receiving the same type of support from their federal government. And I think all Australians would expect that that's the approach the national government should take. Now, it was quite obvious to everybody that nothing had been decided, excepting perhaps by some states on NAPLAN testing. And that, of course, was what he wanted to talk about, not the funding issue. But um, the journalist then asked, what was today's mood of, how was the meeting? How was the mood inside the room? Well, we're told that it was farcical by the the, uh, Australian Education Union. But uh, Mr Birmingham has a different take on it. He said, Oh, there's lots of politics played in front of the cameras when it comes to school funding from different states, different political parties, unions, etc. But ultimately, I find my colleagues constructive to work with and I'm certainly committed to working with them as constructively as possible in the future. So there you have uh, Simon Birmingham, the South Australian senator, politician, being very political indeed. But what the dogs are interested in, and what I think all state school people should be interested in, is that he is adopting some of the rhetoric of the state school lobby groups. You notice there's no mention here of choice. But don't worry. Whereas the state school groups have been very upfront and have been very effective in a lot of their uh, lobbying, particularly with the media, the private school interests have never stopped lobbying. They never do. And they are very, very active, as usual, behind the scenes. So don't hold your breath for what happens in June. But the what did the states what did the uh, state uh, ministers think about all of this? The state and territory ministers have spoken out against uh, Mr. Turnbull Birmingham's new funding plan. We're told, and they're saying that the Turnbull government must honour the six-year Gonski agreements because they're refusing to do so, and that cutting funding will hit disadvantaged students the hardest. 
The New South Wales Education Minister, Rob Stokes, is following on from Piccoli and doesn't seem to have changed the tune of the New South Wales government, remembering that this is a Liberal government which has just recently had a 25% swing against it in those areas which are fairly strong on state school interests. Now, Rob Stokes said that failing to one of the last two years of the Gonski agreements would have the biggest impact on disadvantaged students and he presented a new analysis which showed that New South Wales faced losing $1.3 billion in 2018 and 2019 if Gonski funding was not extended past this year. And he said that this worked out to an average of 1,400 less in federal funding support for every New South Wales public school student and $500 for every private school student. He said, we have a bilateral agreement and have met our obligations and we will be insisting that the Commonwealth does likewise. The AEU Federal President, Karina Haythorpe, Uh, said in her press release that Malcolm Turnbull needed to listen to the states and honour the full six years of the Gonski Agreements, which would deliver an extra $3.8 billion in resources to schools. And some of that, not all of it, perhaps 50% of it, will go to state schools. But only one-third of the extra funding in the Gonski Agreements has been delivered. And Karina says that the state schools need funding to continue in 2018 and 19, so the schools have the resources they need. She said the Turnbull government had repeatedly failed to meet its own deadlines to develop a concrete funding proposal in the 11 months since it announced it wanted to end the Gonski Agreement. And she complains that they've had months of excuses and there's still no detail from Mr Birmingham or Mr Turnbull and there's no alternative proposal on the table. Well, obviously, they want to bed down some kind of um, uh, budget in May, but I think they're going to have big trouble over that too. So the federal government now wants to hold another education minister's meeting in June, just a few weeks before the COAG meeting, where Malcolm Turnbull has said he wants a funding agreement to be finalised. Now, we've mentioned this before. So the time is running out. It's getting chaotic. And uh, there's a last-minute attempt to justify the Turnbull government's attempts to end the needs-based funding or the Gonski funding. Now, the dogs have always said that they're not necessarily in agreement with the Dragonski funding, but at least, at least some money has come through to the disadvantaged children in state schools. And more and more, one becomes aware that the Turnbull government are there to extend the interests of the robber barons and those who wish to be the servants of the robber barons, are particularly the servants whose children go to the private sector. So uh, there is a whole question uh, then of what, where is uh, Victoria at with all of this? The Acting Victorian Education Minister Jenny Mekakos has said, that Victorian school students and parents still have no idea if their homework clubs, 
the extra teachers and the reading and the maths programs are going to continue in our state schools because Malcolm Turnbull refuses to put a funding offer on the table. Now, in Victoria, Malcolm Turnbull has walked away from the Gonski funding agreement and it represents a $1 billion loss to Victorian students, mainly from the most needy and disadvantaged students. And some of that, of course, goes to quite wealthy private schools. And uh, this funding is, of course, absolutely critical to lifting student outcomes, she says. So then there's a bit more uh, from Makarkos of the motherhood statements. And the ACT certainly not funding, not, not happy with the funding proposals of Turnbull, such as they are, because it's very difficult to find out what they are. So uh, everything's up in the air. Everything's up for grabs. And the next two months will be very, very important uh, for the state schools. Meanwhile, Trevor Cobald is still writing and he tells us and he gives lots and lots of his usual factual information that private schools in Australia are overfunded by five to six billion dollars. Well, if they weren't overfunded, we'd have more than enough for at least one year of the the Gonski funding and perhaps even two. And if they weren't funded at all, then we would really be sitting pretty. We could run a first-rate public education system for all Australian children and we could even do better than Finland. But that's enough from me for the moment. We'll have a little bit of music and then Robert will be here with all of his very interesting material. Thanks very much, Jean. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast. Um, yeah, we will have a bit of music. I'm keen on some more golden strings. We'll be back with Defending Government Schools after this.
welcome back to the Dogs Program. Lovely little piece of music there. That was again David Kinsella playing on a uh, Klaviusitherium, which is a golden stringed clavier. A piece called Wach auf mein Hort, dein Löte which means Awake, my treasure, daylight comes. Something quite hopeful there on some golden strings. But back to the back to the hustle and bustle and hurly burly and the argy bargy of education policy as seen through the eyes of the defenders of government schools. Uh, for regular listeners, you'll know that's what we do, but for those people um, who are perhaps new to this program, we deal with education policy at a very detailed level. And we often talk about the historical context. Jean, in particular, has been involved in the education debate for well over half a century. And in doing so, um, has gained a very particular and useful perspective, I would say an expert perspective on what's going on. Um, I've been around for a little bit less long, and so when I go back in history, um, I don't go back quite so far. I would like to remind our listeners all the way back to 2014. Gonski Review has been and gone. Uh, Various federal governments have either implemented it or not implemented it. And in 2014, uh, Mr Gonski himself started getting a bit grumpy because he'd done his review, he'd pointed the way, needs-based funding, but his needs-based funding was his solution to the problem of the social stratification of Australia. He highlighted, and he continues to highlight actually when he finds time for it, but in 2014 he was particularly highlighting the fact that Australia... Um, is a unique country in the world because the government funds three systems of education, not just one. Well, Mr Gonski, of course, is grumpy and feels that he has the right to be grumpy because he was always a member of the elite. Uh, He's had an elitist education, upbringing, career and what have you. So, yes, he's even got on to better things after the Gonski report. He's one of the elite and he expects Mr Turnbull and Mr Birmingham to listen to him and they haven't. Yes, I can understand why Mr Gonski's not happy. Well, I'm not saying... Well, actually, I have no idea whether he is or he isn't. As you say, he's gone on to better things. But back in the dark days of history, back in 2014, he was unhappy. And he thought, the, he thought that while he was taking part in the review, um, he felt that his personal story was... what well, his personal story was, was the core of why he was doing what he was doing because... He pointed out that his grandfather had very little school schooling and his grandfather resented and felt that he'd suffered from this detriment his entire life, whereas his father had had a good education, became a brain surgeon. And, of course, Mr. Mr. Gonski himself, um, being then the child of a brain surgeon, became the child of the elite and um, you know, obviously became, as he described himself, a courtier to the power, power that is in Australia. But... Per capita in 2014, which is an interesting think tank, um, I think they're still around, released a report, a report into strange attitudes toward public education based upon what Mr Gonski was saying at the time. It was put together by Verity Firth and Rebecca Huntley. And this report in 2013 found that anxiety over educating children has become the issue du jour in 2014, back in those days, of Australian parents. And it starts very early. Parents in 2014 were focusing on education of their children even from kindergarten. They were planning ahead, even choosing where they would live, move to or where they would live based upon the school choices that they, that they would make. And they pointed out at that time, and it's still true now, that the choices available to Australian parents are in some ways unique. When you compare Australia with other OECD countries... The choice of public versus private is a real question, given the size of Australia's non-government sector. 
Now, often in the Dogs program, we talk about what's going on in Britain and the US as other English-speaking countries, but in Britain, around 7% of the population are educated in private schools. In the United States, it's around 10%, or 1 in 10 children. In Australia, it's 34%. And that is, that is private schools of both the Catholic and in, in, in independent stripes. Now, it is simplistic, they say, to argue that the arrangement of having the choice of three sectors is in any way a genuine choice. Like any other market mechanism, those with the most resources are able to exercise the most choice and negotiate the best schooling outcomes, and that's in inverted commas, I say best, because it's certainly not, best schooling out from, from, for their kids in the private sector. And Firth and Huntley found in the report, those who are privileged in the system seek to tend, or tend to seek out a way of giving... Um, well, people who, people who are privileged see a sort of market system as being fair. And they see, privileged people see, that the market allows people to be masters of their own fate. Whereas, in fact, the market in education only works for those people who are privileged. It doesn't work for everyone else. Now, the research at the per capita um, in, back in 2014 showed that those who are in a position to choose or, or are actually abandoning public schools at that time, and students who are left behind work with diminishing social capital and teachers who are stretched for dealing, of course, with the needs of many children with complex needs. Now, this arrangement in 2014 led to a situation where the Australian education is characterised by concentrations of both advantage and disadvantaged, what we refer to here on the DOGS program as apartheid. In particular, research that was done as part of the Gonski Review. Gonski showed that when compared to other OECD countries, Australian schools in particular are characterised by relatively strong concentrations of disadvantaged students in disadvantaged schools. Increasingly, the Australian education system at that time, was stratified along socioeconomic lines. Now, that's back in 2014. We're now three years on from that, so we're now bringing up to present day. And I'd like to sort of highlight, that's the way it was, um, that's the way it was going, and now we've arrived. We've arrived in their future. And what's happening and what's going on, I think, is highlighted by an article written by Ross Kittens, who's an economist, just by the way, an economist for the Fairfax Media an economist who has very interesting views on education, which I'd like to share with you, because he personalises. He says he actually likes where he lives. Um, he likes to shop locally and not at big supermarkets, and so he can run across his friends and his neighbours on a Saturday morning and be greeted with a smile and know people's names and the names of the shopkeepers who, who know him. He says, and I quote, I figure the best way to get to know people in your suburbs is to own a dog. You get to talk to other dog owners as you stand around in local parks and you send your kids to the local school. You can't help getting to know other parents in your kids' classes. But as he said, that was years ago. That was in before 2014. And he says, that now the times have changed because the local school isn't the institution it used to be back in the days of history. He says, perhaps it won't surprise you to be told that over the years our capital cities have become more stratified. In 2017, there is a greater tendency for better-off people to live in better-off suburbs, the ones with water and views, and these days, those closest to the centre, and for the less well-off to live in less well-off suburbs, far from the gaze of the centre of the city. He says, this is most true of Sydney, and then Melbourne, it's true of there as well. 
which is catching up with Sydney in size. But it's actually less true of other capital cities around Australia. He says, well, this may be a surprise to those people who knew the way things were, but something similar is actually happening in our schools, and particularly in secondary schools. We have a widening divide between the schools attended by the offspring of the better educated, that's Gonski and his like, the better off parents, again, that's Gonski, and those attended by, well, the not so well educated and the not so well paid. This is happening partly in consequence of the increased stratification of suburbs, but also because the education policy is pursued by federal and state governments. He says, unlike almost all other rich economies, Australia runs three school systems rather than just one. Now, this array of school systems has tempted us to cheat or treat school as though it was a market where government, Catholic and independent schools, compete for youthful customers, thus providing parents with greater choice and obliging government schools to lift their game. Now, John Howard was big on choice, and Julia Gillard left Howard's pro-choice funding arrangements running, didn't change them until Labor last year, um, until Labor's last year, which emphasised competition between schools. Now, she, by the way, and we've highlighted this before, um, Gillard introduced NAPLAN, the testing of literacy and numeracy, and to ensure parents were well-informed before making their choices in their marketplace. So we've got a lot of choice, and now we have a lot of choice. But there is no improvement in measured performance. Just because we all have choice doesn't mean schooling gets better. And greater inequality. Indeed. We've certainly put that questioned up, haven't we? And the moral to the story, of course, is that schools are not a market. I'm going to say that again because we've said it before, but it's really important. Schools are not a market. Now, one benefit, however, is that researchers because now collate my school data and give us much clearer picture. And Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd, who were two retired high school principals, who we've often quoted here on the Dogs Program, and we have come up with a very detailed and long-term analysis of what's going on in 2017, again, which we've reported. Now, everyone knows there's been a decade-long drift for students from government to non-government schools. But what the not-so-retired principals, Bernie and Chris, have discovered is that this has masked a big shift from schools from low socioeconomic advantage to those with high ones. My school shows that over the five years to 2015, average enrolments at all schools grew by more than five students a year. But enrolments of schools for rich kids grew by an average 11 students, whereas schools that serviced poor kids grew by just one student. Now, when choosing schools, many of us think of a hierarchy of excellence in teaching and results, running from government to Catholic to independent. But that's just what you see on the packet when you're buying something. And it's echoed, indeed, by the prices on the packets. Studies estimate that 78% of the variance in performance of schools is explained by the differences in their socioeconomic advantage. That is, how rich the kids were. Independent schools tend to get good exam results because most of their students come from rich families. But they don't do very well at university because they've been force-fed. So that's what happens in the market too, isn't well, it? Well, it's true. And it's just Catholic schools get better results than you might expect because the days when their classrooms were full of working-class kids are long gone, he says. You expect this to mean that public schools increasingly fall of a disadvantage to get poor results. True, but they mm. retain a high proportion of advantaged students than you'd expect. Mm. Why? asks Ross. Some people Partly. are some some people 
are actually quite intelligent and know where best their children will go. Yeah, partly because public schools in rich suburbs still have a lot of rich kids in them. Mainly because, particularly in Sydney and to a lesser extent Melbourne, state authorities have responded to the demand for greater choice by creating more selective state schools. But this means greater stratification on the basis of socioeconomic status, even within the government system, coming at the expense, again, of disadvantaged government schools. Choice, however, this choice, which now Birmingham doesn't seem to be talking about, is not available to everyone. You have to choose... You need to be either brainy or have money. Now, the vogue for choice has also allowed greater stratification of students in, on the basis of religion. Now, these days, Jewish kids go to Jewish schools, Muslim kids go to Muslim schools, and Baptist and Pentecostal kids go to, inverted commas, Christian schools. Trouble is, high socioeconomic advantage schools aren't always located in high-status suburbs. So these days, a lot more traffic congestion is caused by a lot more students and parents travelling longer distances to and from school, leading to the decline of the local school. Less than a third of schools now have an enrolment that resembles the people in their local area. Less than a third of schools in Australia have enrolments that in any way resemble the people who live around them. Does this include country country places where, in fact, there's only one school, which is the state high school, I wonder? I think, Jane, it does not. But I just find that statistic amazing. Less than a third of schools in Australia have an enrolment that resembles or comes from the people around them. And this explains why our level of civility, our community reaction to each other, why it has declined and why it's more and more of a jungle out there, I believe. Mm. If children go to school together and their parents meet up with the dogs and the children in the local park, Mm. then you have a lot more communication and identification and um, just civilities. Mm. Which leads to the joke, what what did the Muslim child say to the Christian child? Nothing, they never met. What did the rich kids say to the poor kid? <laughs> Nothing. They, they never met. And that's what we're fighting for here at the Defence of Government Schools, Council for the Defence of Government Schools. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting so the kids get to meet each other. We're fighting so that the kids can get to meet each other in the schoolyard at their local school. Because I went to a school like that, and I, know, I don't want to ram- romance about the part t- past too much, but it is impossible to be racist against anyone that you've grown up with in the school your schoolyard. There's people you like and people you don't like. That's absolutely true in grade four and five and six and seven and eight and nine. But never, if you grow up together, is it because of the colour of their skin. It's the content of the character you dis- you object to or like, not the colour of their skin or their, or their religion or anything like that. So that's what we've been fighting for. That's why we're here. That's, that's why we talk the talk we talk. That's That's why we fight the fight. That's why... We're sitting here saying things now that everyone else is saying. People like Ross Gittins in the mainstream press are now saying what we've been saying for years. Various think tanks per capita three years ago saying what we're saying. We're not out on the edge anymore. We're on a community radio station, 3CR. I'm proud to be here. But often when we talk about this stuff, it's like we're, it's like we're mainstream. Um, I think we'll be back with a little bit more um, from the Dogs Program after a bit of music and these messages. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. 
We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Marxism 2017, Australia's biggest left-wing conference. International guests, over 100 sessions. Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th. Victorian College of the Arts. Special guest speakers from the front line against Trump. Black Lives Matter activists, Hayley Pisson and Kuri Peterson-Smith. Palestinian freedom fighter, Bessin Tamini. On the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Marxism 2017. Radical Wheels, film festival, art exhibition, book launches and other cultural events. Marxism 2017, Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th, Victorian College of the Arts. Visit marxismconference.org to secure your tickets. Marxism 2017, a 3CR supporter. David Kinsella playing Mit Ganz in Willem, with all my will. Yes, the sound of gold here on 3855 and AM Dahl, playing again on the Claviatherium, the golden clavier. Um, Jane, 
You've got some more news for us. Yes, I've got some local news, uh, you know, which has been given me by other people and I'm very, very grateful to our members who provide us with material for this program. Uh, here is a media release by the Honourable James Molina, who is the Minister for Education in Victoria. Final designs for a Ballarat Tech School unveiled. The uh, Minister for Education, James Molino, and the member for Wendery, Sharon Knight, today visited Federation Universities Australia's SMB, that's the Ballarat campus, to unveil designs for the groundbreaking new facility. So there's going to be a big technical school in the actual Ballarat, Ballarat University, the Federation University. Our listeners, do you remember when we had those wonderful tech schools that they closed thanks to uh, the Jean Blackburn report back in the 1980s? But the interesting thing about this tech school, and there's going to be others as well, is that it's not just for public school students. It's one of 10 new tech schools being built under the Labor government's 128 million tech schools initiative. And these tech schools are going to use leading technology to deliver advanced education and training in science, technology, engineering and maths. But who's going to use them? The Ballarat one is going to be used by the following schools. Ballarat Christian College. Ballarat Clarendon College. Ballarat Grammar. Ah, finally, the Ballarat High School, the Ballarat Secondary College and the Ballarat Specialist School. So that's three of one and three of the government schools. And then we get Damascus College and Dalesford Secondary College. So they're roughly equal at the moment between private and public. Then there's Federation College and Lake Bolac College and then there's Loretto College, Catholic School, Mount Clare College and Phoenix Peter 12 Community College and St Patrick's College, Ballarat, and Newell Park Peter 8 Community College. I'm not sure how many of those schools which I read out are in fact private schools and how much public schools because these days they all have college after them. But it's quite clear that a substantial proportion are in fact private schools, certainly more than the 30-odd percent that go to these schools. So uh, Mr Andrews and Mr Molino are looking after the private schools very well in Victoria, giving them access to public facilities. Now, here's the other little bit of information, and thank you again to the person who gave me this. Um, from Saturday, April the 1st, The Age, commercial real estate. Now, on this program before, we've told you about the Haleybury 52 million plus, plus, plus college, which is down in King Street. 
It has a vertical campus, which is actually uh, being used, this idea now, by the government uh, at Pran and uh, down at the Docklands as they propose to build all those state schools which have gone missing in the last 20, 30 years. They're going to be vertical, like Haleybury. Now, this upmarket private school, Haleybury College is fighting to stop a 24-storey hotel development next door. Now, dear listeners, this is poetic justice. Haleybury bought the NAB building, which a group of Western Melbourne uh, citizens fought against back in 1988 by centennial year because this building took away the most one of the most historic views in Australia. This is bicentennial year. It was the view from the Flagstaff Hill with the Flagstaff to the Williamstown Flagstaff. And one thing we did do was to cut off an edge of this building. If you look at the picture of it, you will see that there is something cut off the edge. But don't worry, we kept a tunnel view, but Mr Kennett came along and allowed Central Equity to put up a huge building, which meant that the view went anyway. But here is Haleybury College that paid all these tens of millions to get this big a National Bank building and make it into uh, an extension of their schooling business because it is a schooling business, whether it is loosely attached to the unit, to the um, Uniting Church or not. And they are having problems with planning issues, with a 24-storey hotel development next door. And this high-rise has been proposed by the site's Chinese owners who purchased the plot a year ago without planning permits for $14.6 million. Now, Haleybury, we find out on this article, has campuses in Brighton, Keysborough, Berwick and the CBD. One, two, three, four. And I think it's also got some overseas. In 2015, it paid $52.5 million for an eight-storey building at 383 King Street where it established the city's first vertical school. And at the moment, it has 234 students and you'll see these 234 students regularly using the Flagstaff Gardens as if the Flagstaff Gardens were the playground for this school. The Haleybury principal, Derek Scott, has told the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal last month that the school researched and visited other vertical schools around the world before beginning a two-year search for the appropriate building. And so they want rooftop spaces that allow for a sports program for years 9 to 12 and passive recreation areas during the day. Well, I assure you, they're not using those so much as the uh, Flagstaff Gardens. But they complain that the shadow that's going to be cast over them by the multi-storey building not only affects the aesthetics of the space, but also the well-being of our students. When approached by Business Day, a spokeswoman for Haleybury said that the matter was before VCAT and the school had nothing further to add. 
but they are concerned that students who are working or playing on the school premises would also be overlooked by the occupants of the hotel and apartments. Oh, the delights of city living. Oh, the delights of being big business in King Street, Melbourne. So that's enough from me. That's the um, local news and views. Uh, Back to Robert. Thanks very much, Jane. You're listening to the Defenders of Government Scores, DOGS, on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Um, If you're interested um, in what Jean's been saying, you can check us out on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But here on the Dogs Program, sometimes we report breaking news. I'd like to report that earlier in the week, two gangs um, broke into our government and stole $440 million. Um, and, And guess what? Apparently, that's not a criminal thing to do. Two gangs. One was called um, Evoca College, and the other one was called Careers Australia. And over three years, they siphoned off $440 million of your money, dear taxpayers, your money, dear Australians, um, and took it away and didn't do very much with it. Um, Now, Simon Birmingham... Actually, interesting. Simon Birmingham's getting interesting, isn't he? Simon Birmingham has finally, finally after, I don't know, it's about six or seven years from both Labor and Liberal governments, finally decided to crack down on shonky private colleges who are providing um, what the TAFEs used to provide, technical and further education. So I'm reporting this, Robbie, because federal funding has actually now been stripped from both Careers Australia and Evoca College, two private colleges that raked in more than $440 million of taxpayers' money in just three years. Now, why have they been stripped of their accreditation? I wonder what the Chinese government would do with this slot. Oh, yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, why has it been stripped? They both come under scrutiny because they have what are called alarmingly low completion rates and aggressive recruitment practices, and they were informed they would lose their accreditation under the federal government's new VET loan scheme. So no more taxpayers' money for them. Now, the two colleges have shared more than... 24,000 students over the past year as the government cracked down on the sector. Now, they are two two colleges of more than 150 private colleges, all of which were government-funded, all of which wouldn't exist unless they had taxpayers' money, that found out last Tuesday that they would not be re-accredited. And that leaves up to 1,700 students in limbo. Approximately 1,200 of the 1,700 of these students students, um, were at Avoca College or Careers Australia, according to the Department of Education. Now, hundreds of staff in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland could also be facing the sack as the two institutions relied almost exclusively on public money to run their course in business, health care and IT. Now, public money also represents debts that have been run up by the students themselves. And I think it should be said that it was the Labor Party that started this scheme of private TAFE colleges and it was the Labor Party back in the 1980s with Dawkins, the education minister from the Labor Party, that started putting debt onto our young people. Yes, well, Careers Australia have kind of seen the writing on the wall and being good little pseudo-criminal gangs that they are, they paid back $44 million in taxpayers' funding last year after it admitted... It had breached Australian consumer law and engaged in unconscionable contact. So they've been found guilty. I tell you what, Robert, if some of these young people were paid back 
their hex debt, actually paid it now and given the free education they should have been given, they could actually have a, a deposit for a new house. Yeah, we'd not to get into this super. Perhaps Mr Borison should have a thought bubble about that. That's true. Now, it's been admitted by, by Careers Australia that they've broken the law. And why did they break the law? Well, they enrolled students in some of the poorest, Russian, most remote communities of Australia and put them in thousands of dollars debt, knowing that they weren't actually going to be passing the course in the long run anyway. Now, since that, the company has been delivering training to hundreds of the country's future electricians. So since they've admitted they're doing the wrong thing, they've kept going. And the government's kept giving them money until last Tuesday, when Birmingham finally said, that's enough. Well, would you want to employ one of these electricians? It'd be a bit scary, wouldn't it? Now, the latest data from the VUT Fair Help shows from 2015, because we haven't got anything after that, revealed that Evoca earned $110,000 of taxpayer funding per graduate between 13 and... That's $110,000 per student. After only 1,600 of the 13,000 students completed their courses. It earned $180 million in funding for that. That is to say, at the same time, Careers Australia earned more than $264 million in taxpayer funding while graduating, get this, only 14.7% of their students. That's like one and a half in ten, or was it, was it was a, a three in twenty. i tell you what, when they contract out all these services... Does the government impose KPIs on them? Because there's an awful lot of very good public services that have been contracted out that have been well and truly messed up, uh, starting with the electricity and gas, of course. Look, Jean, if you're going to go and check on what people do when you give them the money, that's just too much red tape. That's what that is, Jane. That's red tape. That's and, accountability. And, and, oh, and, and conservatives, they, they want to cut the red tape. You listen to someone like Barnaby, cut all this regulation and let business get on with it. Business, they're not businesses. They are, by definition, parasites. They don't have any income apart from the money they get from the government. Look, this consultancies and this outsourcing has actually reached a ridiculous level. In the journal of called Public Perspectives of Summer 2017 that's put out by the CPSU, that in 2014-2015, the total that the Andrews government spent on uh, consultancies was 59 million and then in 2015-16 it went up to 73 million now what could you do with this if in fact that work was just done in house by public servants who had the accumulated knowledge of a uh, hundred odd years but um it's, we've gone quite crazy. The neoliberalism the neo- is almost at an end because it has, in fact, been so badly done. Indeed. We listen to the Dogs Programme. We are the defenders of government schools here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. If you want to find out more about us, check us out at our website at www.adogs.info. But until next week, when the fight continues, it's bye from us here at the Defenders of Government Schools. Alive as you and me, says 
I but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Sir. Uh-huh.